Richard Alpert and the team on the brass of Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except it occurred on a Tuesday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. What follows, as he does every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. The deal which I sent Araldus Chapman from the Cincinnati Reds to the New York Yankees in exchange for a collection of prospects. Dave Cameron addresses it. The very real possibility that the Chicago Cubs are the best team in baseball and certainly have received the best projections according to Steamer and uh, probably according to Zips. Dave Cameron addresses that. The signing by the Washington Nationals of Daniel Murphy. Dave Cameron mostly addresses it, nearly addresses it. Does Dave Cameron also utilize a food metaphor while considering the strategy that the Cubs were in office utilized in constructing its current roster? Yes, he does. Not everything the Cubs did worked, but they basically just threw spaghetti at the wall and a few things really stuck. I love which is to say there's a conversation which, with Dave Cameron to follow. Before that begins, I would be remiss and also in breach of contract. In breach of contract, not to mention our sponsor. Sponsor is Draft, the Draft app. Are you familiar with daily fantasy sports games? This is, for example, DraftKings or FanDuel. Those are examples of it. Well, what I would like to tell you about right now, and I've told you about it before, and I will likely tell you about it again, it is Draft. Draft is unique in that it is uh, designed for mobile devices exclusively. Here's how you play after downloading the app. You find either a friend or an internet stranger in the Draft universe. You conduct a snake draft. Each select five players. Those players accrue fantasy points according to the stats that they produce in a particular game. And then whichever you or your opponent has accrued the most fantasy points, uh, you are the winner. He or she or they are all the winners of the game. Are you uh, interested in wagering some American currency on the outcome of this contest, you can do that. You can do that with with draft. You can do that. Nor is it merely baseball, and why would it be? I'm delivering this message with the new year right around the corner. There is not, unfortunately, there is not a Dominican Winter League version of draft. However, one can play games utilizing college or professional football, uh, and also uh, hockey and basketball, professional versions of each. What an opportunity. What an opportunity you say and to take advantage of it. Here's all you have to do if you have an Apple device. Go to the App Store. Download the app there. If you have uh, an Android device, consider going to Google Play or something like Google Play. You can download it there and begin playing without delay. Post haste, with which I've concluded the message from the sponsor and am uh, just about to conclude this introduction. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor, managing editor... It features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I'm calling you from Providence, Rhode Island. Is that of any interest to you? Sure. Yeah. You ever been here? I think I've driven through. Yeah. But I don't think I stopped because it only took like six minutes, and then I was out of Rhode Island. It's true. I believe it's a small state. Yeah, pretty small. How does a small state – I was looking – I was trying to figure out uh, tax rates in different states. Yeah. And according to one uh, report I saw, which was really just a, uh, like a top – it was like a 10 best worst type of post you see. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Um, uh, essentially like spending per per capita. I think Rhode Island like has the most benefits – Per person, but I was wondering if that was uh, somehow reflective of the size of the state. 
Probably. I mean, Delaware, I think, is known as like a tax haven for businesses, right? That's why every credit card offer you've ever received has come from Delaware. Yeah. Um, so I think like small states that don't have, you know, significant natural resources or, you know, land or people probably have to do some other kinds of things like provide tax incentives in order to get people to live there. Oh, yeah. But I think also like they provided um, – I don't know if – I think their tax rates were pretty normal, but the tax benefits per per capita were the highest. Or oh, so like they they taxed as much, but they spent it better. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. Okay. So they were efficient. I think that's what they were. I think I think that Rhode Island might be efficient, but this is also but like isn't, isn't Rhode Island famous for like Kurt Schilling losing like seventy million other dollars? Well, that doesn't sound particularly efficient. No. Yeah. But um, no, I think that, uh, that this is also really uh, might have come from an edition of Men's Health magazine. Oh, so who cares what they said? Well, I you know I don't want to disparage the good name of men's health magazine but it, it's not naturally Disparage, disparage away it's not necessarily what you think of the number one resource for uh, information about uh, uh, local taxes state yeah. and municipal federal yeah. yeah anyway i think if you wanted to know like which anabolic steroid to use probably mm-hmm. a good source you know it's interesting you wrote this uh, piece recently with regard to maybe jeff samarja or johnny cueto regarding the regarding tax structures in california versus maybe arizona is that right? I did. Yes. You wrote that post. I did. You agree? Yeah. yeah. We we agree that that happened. Yeah. Okay. So I was thinking about that. I was looking at the because uh, I think that what the highest tax bracket in uh, California to which Johnny Cueto uh, I'm sure belongs. Yeah. Um, is what is it close to 14 percent? 13.1. Yeah. 13. It's 12, and then there's like a one percent tax on people who make a million or more. So it's 13.1 for millionaires essentially. Oh, okay. Um. Um, that's that's quite a bit. So yeah. so if you so uh, let's see, if you made a hundred million dollars, yeah, thirteen million dollars in California, right? So they, so in theory, a team that does not have income tax could charge you uh, what eighty seven. They could give you eighty seven million dollars, and that would be yeah. the same contract. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't exactly work that way because you have to pay taxes in all the states you play. So, like, uh, you have to, like, a, a, what they call the jock tax is actually a complicated calculation based on the number of games you play in each city around the country. Is it really? Um, yeah. So it's like if you play, you know, three games in Ohio, you have to pay some taxes to Ohio. And if you pay three games in Florida, then you have to pay taxes to Florida. This is a real thing? This is a real thing, yeah. My. This is, this is why, uh, athletes have accountants. Yes, it, <laughs> That would be that, that must be a miserable filing. I mean, I'm sure if you are, for example, I'm sure that. Uh, so, like, if do you think that the players in the Giants? Do you think many of them use the same accountant? No, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think my, my sense is that the agents uh, that the team has probably also hook them up with like a preferred uh, financial planner or accountant, and they kind of like roll their services into one, and then just like, hey, look, we're just going to take care of all your money. Uh, so my, my guess is this, this kind of rolls through your agency. The player ideally doesn't have to think about it at all. Yeah, I think right. The player probably should not be super involved in his own accounting. But <laughs> at the same time, like, you, you know, the player should be at least involved enough to not get taken for a scam, right? Like, I mean, this is one of the problems that we've seen with a lot of football players who, like, you know, let the, one of their childhood friends take care of their money because they're loyal to them or something, and then all of a sudden you hear about, like, the player lost $20 million or $40 million because his friend was not actually ethical and wasted all their money. Like, the player has to have uh, enough involvement to not get robbed. Yeah, right, right. And, of course, uh, I'm sure that uh, if he's sitting down with a financial advisor, they say, well, what are your interests? I mean, ideally your interests are 
to have some money to spend and also to save. It seems like it's good for everybody. Right. Yeah. Anyway, do, as a, what do, to what degree do tax rates uh, figure into a player's slash agent's decision to sign with a certain team? I mean, probably not dramatically so, but the, if the agent's doing his job, he can give essentially give the player an apples to apples comparison, right? So, like, instead of just going to Johnny Cueto and saying, "Hey, look, the Giants offered 130 million, and the Giant, the Diamondbacks only offered 120. This is more." Uh, theoretically, and I would assume that, you know, most agents are competent enough to do this, the agents are giving, uh, Cueto essentially the after-tax offers. Of like, here's how much your take-home is going to be. Right. So, you know, assuming you're basically going to lose half your paycheck no matter where you go, but it's 55% in California, and it's, you know, or you get to keep 55% in Arizona and you only keep 50% in California, they would make that adjustment and say, hey, look, you know, the, the Diamondbacks offer is actually, you know, very slightly higher or something like that. And so, I, you know, I would assume that the the player is getting the after-tax uh, kind of what what's going to go in their bank account uh, consideration. And how does the union feel about it from this perspective, right? So say you got offered uh, 110 in California, or, you know, by, uh, you know, by by the Giants, yeah, and then you or said no. So you got just to, we'll use the same numbers. You got offered a hundred by the Giants, and you got offered ninety five by the Diamondbacks. Yeah, the, the ninety five from the Diamondbacks is more uh, money. Yeah, is more money. Yeah. but then the figure that's printed and is you know is distributed is uh you know the, the figure from the Giants is larger, which could help in theory could help um, other players receive more money. Yeah, but I think, like, everyone in the game kind of knows how this works, right? And so, like, it's not so much that the Players Association is trying to get everyone to sign with teams in high tax bracket markets because then that inflates the salaries for everybody else. Like, you know, teams can make the same argument. It's like, hey, look, you know, fine, you've got 130 on the table, but that's from an L.A. team. Uh, so we're only going to offer 120 because in our market that's the same. And so um, it's not like this isn't an, a known idea that, that teams can adjust for. And so, you know, if you get a higher offer from a team in California – uh, then a team in, you know, Ohio or wherever can be like, yeah, well, that, that, the equivalent offer from us is this, so we're matching them even if it's a lower dollar figure. Do you think a player might say, well, yeah, the, uh, taxes are higher in California, but, you know, going to San Francisco, you have access to excellent, uh, excellent public transit. And <laughs> you think players use public transit? I know that, uh, Matt Bonner, uh, Matt Bonner, a native of, uh, my hometown of Concord, New Hampshire, uh, notably, would take uh, the he would take the subway to his Toronto Raptors games when he was a player there. Okay, well, the, you probably only know that because that was news. Because most players do not do that. You don't think they do? No, okay. I don't think you're going to see like uh, you know Tim Lincecum taking the Bart. Like I just don't. I don't think that's happening. Yeah, probably not. You're probably a good point. I don't even know if the Bart uh, goes directly to AT and T. I don't. I'm, I don't pretty, I'm pretty sure it does because I've actually taken the Bart to AT and T. Oh, okay. All right, fair enough. So. You sure it wasn't the the San Francisco City subway? I believe they I, are different systems. Okay, fine. I don't actually. I took a public transport system mm-hmm. from the airport to the stadium. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. That, yeah. If you went from the airport, it was it probably was Bart. Yeah. Okay. I think it was Bart. I don't know. Uh, and this has been our podcast about public transportation. The something, uh, well, I say it's relevant. The uh, let's see. So, uh, I guess what is yesterday? What we're doing this on a Tuesday? Was it just yesterday that the that the New York Yankees traded for Araldis Chapman? Yeah, that happened uh, about 24 hours ago. Okay, so it's a little bit of a bummer, right? The Chapman situation, because regardless of what specifically happened, it seemed like I don't know, like a guy was firing a gun. Um, and not for like hunting purposes. 
Yeah. And probably something objectionable happened, and it also maybe seems as though, given reports that he that maybe he's not what I don't know, not a great teammate, or he's he's a guy with troubles. Can we say he's got troubles associated with him? I mean, there's legal off the field issues uh, that may you know MLB is investigating. So I think from the very minimum. Uh, there's some non-zero chance that Chapman could be suspended for part of the 2016 season because Major League Baseball has just passed uh, or instituted last year kind of a, a domestic violence uh, policy. And then this mm-hmm. uh, this winter we've seen Jose Reyes and uh, uh, now uh, Chapman kind of be the first two people to kind of test this and see how stringent Major League Baseball is going to be because they don't want the negative fallout that the NFL has gotten from, like, the Adrian Peterson situation and um, a few others. Yeah. Uh, so I think, like, uh, right, we're, we're not exactly sure what Major League Baseball is going to do. Um, so there's, a you know, an unfortunate incident that we don't really know what happened, but something seemed to have happened uh, that Chapman was involved in that certainly uh, had a significantly negative effect on his market value. Right. Now, uh, Jeff Sullivan wrote about this uh, yesterday. And he he cites two particular things. One is, uh, and I think that he uh, he identifies, uh, I think per- perhaps uh, a way to feel about it, which is uh, similar to the way that I feel about it, which is, um, uh, what did he say? He says, the more we know our athletes, the more we know them as real people, and real people are complex. Where sports are supposed to be simple, this isn't what a lot of us end up for. And of course, uh, when you think about this, you have to consider the fact that. Chapman is uh, not only a real person. Of course, sometimes real people are complex in a beautiful way. And maybe there are things that are beautiful about Raldo Chapman, but the most recent public information regarding him is, is not beautiful. Yeah, I mean, right. I think we should, you know, we should say for sure, we don't know what happened. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's not one of those things where, like, Roldo Chapman's a bad dude because he got accused of something. Like, that's not how America works. But, you know, it's not a great sign that he was involved in an incident where there's at least agreement that he fired a gun with people in his home. Like, maybe at them, maybe not at them. Maybe he was just mad and shooting off some steam. But there was an unfortunate incident in which he was involved. Yeah. Right. There's that. And then uh, and then there's this line, which is the sort of way it interacts with baseball. And this is courtesy of uh, Yankees GM uh, Brian Cashman. He says, Give it, and it's it's phrased in, I suppose, as delicate. And uh, I think he might use the passive voice entirely. Uh, he says, given the circumstances that exist, the price point on the acquisition has been modified. Yeah. <laughs> we felt this was an opportunity to add a big arm to our bullpen. Yeah. But the price point on the acquisition has been modified. There, yes, that is the the passive voice right there. Um, modified, there, but there's no agent. Usually if you have a passive voice, you describe the agent. Uh, and uh, he does not cite the agent. So what has the uh, – the price point has on the acquisition has been modified. What has it been modified by, Dave Cameron? Uh, well, I think it was modified by a lot of teams. I think like Mike Rizzo of the Nationals uh, actually came out and specifically said like we will not trade for Wilbur Chapman while this is still hanging over his head. And I think a lot of teams felt that way. So uh, his his market was modified by the fact that teams that would have been interested or were interested in a few months ago, back when the Reds could have traded him for a tremendous haul in July and chose not to, um, dropped out of the bidding. And so now you shrunk the number of buyers dramatically and the number, the teams that were remaining were only able to, or only willing to take him at a discount because of this thing hanging over his head. So, um, I think Chapman's market would have been dramatic. I mean, I think you saw, uh, what Craig Kimbrell got a few months ago. Chapman wouldn't have returned quite that much because it's one year versus three years. But I think like, you know, it wouldn't have been a dramatically different package, like maybe Chapman gets one of those kinds of prospects or one and some and throw-ins or something. But you know, the Yankees essentially gave up, you know, 
guys they probably won't miss uh, for the best closer in baseball. Right. Well, I could say uh, so. Both Eric. Uh, or I should say Rookie Davis and who was one of the players traded and also Caleb Cotham. Caleb mm-hmm. Cotham, maybe yeah. we'll say it like that. Yeah. Uh, well, Rookie Davis appeared a number of times in the French Five, which is good in the sense that he was the best among the French players, but uh, bad in the sense that he was a French player. Yeah. Uh, and he hadn't appeared on a, uh, any rookie post before that. And then uh, Caleb Cotham, who what has been a, uh, almost exclusively a reliever, at least over the last couple of years. Um, and relievers can be quite good and effective, um, but uh, um, but there's no real um, there's no real huge talent perhaps. And maybe yeah, I mean Cotham's I think considered a throw-in. Like he's not really part of the deal that anyone cares about. It's basically Davis and Jagiello or Jagiello. I don't actually Jagiello, know. Yeah, maybe yeah, Jag, I, Jag, I think it might just be Jagiello. Jagiello. Notre uh, Dame. I think he was from Notre Dame. Yeah. 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 So him and Davis are the return, and the other two guys are just you know. Uh, organizational filler, essentially. Um, but yeah, I mean, they basically got like a decent arm who could be a back rotation starter, maybe, uh, and an infielder who could be a bench guy or maybe an okay, you know, like platoon player down the line. They didn't get much, I think. And then the, Renda, I think Renda's like a, he's like a utility man and ready to go, right? Yeah, I mean, right. So I think the thing that we've seen, and we saw this in the Todd Frazier trade too, is that the Reds are very clearly, and they're even admitting this, while well, Jockney said this publicly after the trade yesterday, they are looking for guys who are major league ready and they're willing to take proximity to the majors over upside. So they don't want guys who could be, you know, star players three or four years down the line because they don't want to wait till 2019 or 2020 to get their return. They're going to take guys who look like, you know, maybe average players or potentially average players not, ne- you know, next year or the year after. So they're, tr- they're trading upside for proximity. So the Reds decided to go ahead and trade Chapman despite the fact that um, news of his indiscretions or uh, uh, possible indiscretions has been made public, um, uh, which I guess means that they're probably pessimistic about his chances of playing a complete season in 2016. Well, not necessarily. So I'll say, like, I don't actually understand why the Reds felt they needed to do this. Like, very clearly his market's down. Everybody agrees with that. The Reds agree with that. I think, you know, there's no question this is a light return for Oldest Chapman. But I don't know why the Reds couldn't have just held on to him, right? Like, see what the investigation yields. If he gets suspended for 25 or 30 games or whatever, no big deal. They're not going to be good next year anyway. Like, not having a role as Chapman for April doesn't really matter. And then, you know, he comes back in May or June or whenever he comes back, if he gets suspended, uh, and he pitches well and gets a little bit further away from the domestic violence issue, and, you know, his market value goes back up next July, and they get significantly more in return for this. Um I guess I don't, I don't see the benefit to the Reds making this deal now. And like really, if he gets suspended for 50 games, like if you think I'm always gonna like drop the hammer, which seems very unlikely, a 50 game suspension would result in the role of Chapman not getting enough service time to qualify for re-agency next year. So then they would have him for another year after that. And it, he might actually have more trade value if he got suspended for 50 games, because you'd be back to trading a year and a half of Chapman's, uh, <laughs> services. So like from the Reds' perspective, they should have been rooting for a 50 game suspension. Um, so I don't- So, so really there was no, uh, the- Actually, there was – yes, I see what you're saying now because I was uh, thinking about this. I was thinking that perhaps they were afraid of a long-term suspension. Um, but then, yes, as you note, uh, that would uh, that would affect his his playing time. Yeah, I mean I think the only thing – the only thing I can see that would like motivate them to do this now is if they know more than other people know and that's possible. And they think like as the investigation goes on – the MLB is going to find some other stuff, and Chapman's going to turn out to be like you know a mob killer who's like put seven guys in the ground or something. And then you're like, oh well, now we can't get anything for this guy. I mean, if you think like there's unreported 
facts to be to come out that could nuke his value even beyond this, then you just take whatever you can get at the moment. But if they don't actually know that and they're just kind of like, well, we just we're rebuilding, so we're going to trade this guy. I don't know why they didn't just wait until July. Yeah, well, perhaps uh, there is um, more intrigue to follow, or not, or uh, that we've said all of that we can say conclusively. It appears. Yeah, the Yankees got a really good reliever for very little because of stuff that we don't know. Because of the question, all the question yeah. marks. Right. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I don't really want to. Uh, I don't want to consider that much longer. Makes okay. me feel makes me feel dark on the inside. I want to. Uh, we could talk about Danny Murphy, but I don't want to for the moment. I would like to ask you about the Cubs. The the Cubs projections. The Cubs projections. The Chicago Cubs zips projections will be available at Fangraphs on Wednesday morning. Spoiler: They're great. Yeah, they're really good. They're fantastic. They appear to be quite good. Uh, and I I suppose this is one way if you're you know you use different sentences uh, to to emphasize that fact. But they signed probably the best. Position player on the market, and he's only the he only is the third best player on the team. Yeah, uh, not, not even including the pitchers, right? <laughs> he's right, the third exactly. best position player on the team. Precisely, right, 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 right. So he might be their fifth best player. Yeah, you could uh, right, you could you could say that he's yeah he's among those top five because I think there's a bit of a fall off to like uh, Ben Zobrist or yeah, but right. yeah between Arietta Lester and then and then Bryant and Rizzo. Yeah. Um, I think if if you look at the the various war figures, even the, the projected war for just Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, and Jason Hayward would beat out the war figures for like um, like maybe almost to ten teams from this past year. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I mean I think uh, the the Cubs are loaded at the top of the roster, and I think that they have an underrated amount of depth. So like you have five star level players, like all guys are projected, you know, four plus win guys, maybe even five plus win guys. Uh, and then you've got, you know, a second tier of guys that are, you know, solidly above average. This is going to be a monster team. Like, obviously things can go wrong. The Nationals looked like a very good team last year and didn't have a very good year. It's not a guarantee, but, like, on paper, the Cubs are a 97-win team or something. So is this kind of – this is the product. Uh, I mean, at, at, at the root, my question will be, how did this happen? And I will I will hazard a guess, which is that this is a sort of, like, very – what we think of when we think of a rebuild, the the, yeah. the Cubs accepted being bad for a couple of years. They were yeah. able to acquire talent by a different a number of different avenues, and now they have a lot of talent that is controlled for for a while. Yeah, well, I mean, this is when a rebuild goes well, right? Like, not every rebuild goes well, but when a rebuild goes well, it looks like this: you end up with Chris Bryant, and you end up with Anthony Rizzo, and you end up with Jake Arrieta. And, you, you know, you hit on some guys, you know, because you're throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. Not everything the Cubs did worked, but they basically just threw spaghetti at the wall and a few things really stuck. And then they also, you know, made some good draft picks and, you know, some big international signings and, uh, you know, then some free agent signings that look like they're decent. And, uh, you know, like the this is what happens when you kind of uh, have time to kind of uh, experiment with a lot of different options and you accept that like not everything you do is going to work over a couple of years but at the e- the end result of that is you might be able to find you know a core uh, roster that you can build around and then at that time when you're good again you go out and spend money and and build a behemoth and that's basically what the Cubs have done. Now when you say uh, when you use that metaphor um, of a spaghetti being thrown at the wall are you doing that because two of the team's best players are conspicuously Italian? Uh Yeah. That's that was absolutely the intention. <laughs> okay, very good. I am definitely that clever. Jake Jake Arrieta and Anthony Rizzo, of course. Yeah. Of course, Arrieta is like almost the very definition of throwing spaghetti at the walls, because yeah. uh, when they acquired him, 
what there was uh, there, there had been some promise at points to his profile, but uh, he was not currently exhibiting it. Yeah, I mean, he's the classic example of what teams who are rebuilding should do. You trade for a former top prospect who has some talent, who hasn't lived up to his potential. Uh, and I think when they traded for Arrieta, I actually liked that trade, but I compared him to Wade Davis. I thought he belonged in the bullpen. I, I was put, kind of writing up like, hey, look what this guy could do if he only had to throw 10 or 15 pitches at a time. The stuff's there. you know. But then he turns into one of the best pitchers in baseball as a starting pitcher. And so I don't think the Cubs saw this coming. Like, they, they, yeah, I think if they were honest, they would tell you uh, that they you know, liked the risk, but they didn't, they didn't know that this was going to be the result. So you know, there's certainly some good luck involved. But like when you can take kind of chances like this, this can happen, and you can find, you know, a Cy Young caliber pitcher making no money. Uh, you have controlled for several years uh, by trading away Jason Hamill. It's not not a bad idea. Okay, let me ask you with regard to uh, to the club. First of all, what is the sort of um, now? Again, you said things can happen, but uh, if we're looking at just at the probabilities, there's there's a there's a high probability that the team will be quite good this year. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, right, the bell curve for the, for the Cubs probably tops out in the mid 90s and, uh, is like the most likely outcome, or at least low 90s, uh, in terms of wins. And like, you know, the, the curve's gonna go into the 70s just to like everyone could get hurt and play terribly, but you know, it's gonna be centered around 90 to 95 wins. Okay. And so what is, what do you think in terms of, uh, you know, based off of the contracts they have and probability of injury, et cetera, what, what is the sort of window right now for the Cubs? I mean, it's wide open. I think you can look at it and say, okay, yeah, the, like John Lester and Jake Arrieta and Ben Zobris, these guys are probably as good as they're going to be and are, should be expected to decline going forward. So, like, there are significant pieces to this team that have peaked or are on the decline. Uh, but then you look at Bryant and Rizzo and, you know, Addison Russell and Hayward's 26, and uh, this is there's a lot of young position player talent, Jorge Soler and Kyle Schwarber. I mean, like, this is... This is not a team that has, you know, a lot of kind of they're kind of the opposite of the Mets, right? Where the Mets have a lot of young pitching, which is a little bit risky. Where young pitching can often peak early and blow up and turn into, you know, disabled list pitching. Uh, the Cubs have a lot of young position player talent, uh, basically all around the field, and you know, veteran pitching. And so I think they're in a better position where you can look at it and say, look, you know, there's no reason to expect that Rizzo and Bryant and Russell and Soler and Schwarber and Hayward aren't going to be the core of a contender for. Three, four, five years. Uh, even if Hayward, assuming Hayward opts out of his deal, uh, you know they'll have more money to spend because they're paying him twenty-five, twenty-six million dollars a year up front. So you know they'll be able to reallocate that to another quality free agent probably. And um, so I think yeah, the Cubs are in a position where they're going to be good now. They're going to be good for a while. Uh, there's there's no real obvious timeline for the Cubs are going to be bad in two or three years because they've taken some some risks that are going to hurt them long term. I think the, the Cubs have set themselves up to be. The behemoth of baseball for the next, you know, five years. So uh, when I when I roll out these, uh, you know, when I write these posts for the Zips, uh, I try and attempt to uh, create a depth chart, right? Uh, and uh, one thing, one per- player with whom, uh, about whom I was a bit confused, uh, was Javier Baez. He actually receives a, a pretty favorable projection according to Zips, over two wins. Yeah. In um, some, a little over 500 plate appearances. That's a that's a strong player, especially given the age. Um, but uh, I, so I stuck him in left field just to have his name on there, and I figured a platoon of Schwarber and um, I don't I don't necessarily know what uh, Schwarber splits were, but a platoon of Schwarber and Baez would be interesting. Um, and Baez would seem to have, you know, if he's played uh, shortstop somewhat decently, he would seem to be able to pick up left field. Uh, but what do you think will ultimately, how do you think Baez will ultimately be used this next year? 
Yeah, but I think if he's going to play at the major league level and they're going to keep him, he's probably an outfielder. I mean, I think you could even see him as like maybe a center fielder. There's, they, they experimented, I think, with playing him in center field a little bit during winter ball. Uh, I do think long-term, long uh, the Cubs can say they're going to roll out this Hayward, Schwarber, Solaire defense. I don't believe them. <laughs> I think they're going to trade someone, probably Solaire. Um, and they're just kind of waiting for the right deal. Uh, but I think they would prefer to not have a, you know, corner outfielder move to center and play between two guys who are defensive liabilities. And Schwarber could be, you know, a significant defensive liability theoretically. And especially, you know, like, um, even if he platoons with Baez, who's another converted guy, you just don't really have good defensive outfielders at that point besides Hayward, who hasn't played a lot of center field. So, um, I think most likely the Cubs are going to make a trade. And, uh, you know, maybe it won't happen before the season. Maybe they'll roll with this for a few months. But I think at some point, maybe uh, either before the year, June, July, August, they're going to say, you know what, we've got three corner outfielders. We'd be better off if we traded for a center fielder. Right. Now, uh, Solaire, of course, is uh, has been a top prospect for a bit. Um, the projection is not particularly optimistic right now. In part, that is, uh, that's a product of, of uh, playing time. I think he's projected for fewer than 400 plate appearances. But you would think that uh, you would suppose that a team uh, that is very much uh, you know, a contender, uh, they would want to address that, that position at some point. So, uh, and I think that there have, what, there have been rumors regarding Soler too, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Soler is that he doesn't necessarily fit the Cubs roster as well as everybody else. Where, like, you know, you look at him and you can still see a lot of potential for, you know, if he essentially translates – uh, his raw power into game power, and he elevates the ball a little bit more. This could be a, you know, middle of the order hitter, uh, who could have a lot of value. On the other hand, uh, he's kind of a defensive liability who doesn't run the bases that well, and isn't yet a really impactful hitter, and you could get a guy who's a significantly better defensive outfielder who can play center field and allow Hayward move back to right and not necessarily lose a lot on offense presently. And if you could turn Solaire into someone who, you know, was a, uh, you know, a quality pitcher who could give them a little bit more depth in their rotation. Uh, I think as Jeff Sullivan wrote, like, you know, the fact that they're chasing another pitcher suggests that maybe they might have some concerns about Jake Arrieta's health, uh, given how many innings he threw last year, and they kind of want uh, to put themselves in a position where if Arrieta blows out, they still have, you know, uh, another dynamic one-two with Lester at the front of the rotation. Um, so if they could trade Solaire for you know, a quality young starting pitcher and then go out and, you know, sign a Denard Span or some kind of, uh, you know, decent free agent center fielder, uh, or make a trade for kind of a mid-level guy, or even bring back Dexter Fowler, you could say, you know what, we're not significantly worse in the outfield. We might even be better uh, with Hayward back in the corner, and we got this other, you know, thing that perhaps we could use a little bit more in the short term. Is there? Does it seem like they, they still have money to spend after signing uh, Hayward and Zobrist? Probably not a lot, but I think if you're trading a guy like Solaire, you don't necessarily need to acquire someone expensive, right? Solaire should theoretically ap- appeal to teams who, um, you know, have... Uh, cheap, controllable assets at other positions. And obviously the, the primary fit that everyone talks about is Cleveland because they have a really good young rotation uh, with guys like Carlos Carrasco and Danny Salazar. Uh, I'm guessing if there was a fit there, something probably would have already happened by now. Uh, but there are other teams that could potentially move a young pitcher for a young outfielder uh, and allow the Cubs to get another low-cost guy in return. Okay. And then... Uh... Well, yeah, I guess that was. I guess that, yeah, the, Solaire was was the one question besides Baez, and uh, you've addressed that. Uh, strong team, and they still have players like uh, like Billy McKinney in yeah. the minor leagues. Yeah, it's not like their farm system is barren now that they promoted all these guys. No, that's not. And of course, they made uh, which uh, they made, they acquired Tommy Lastella last offseason. They acquired uh, Mike O'Neill. Yeah. This one. So there you are. That's a good way to end. 
That's exactly the Cubs, right. known as a team of Mike O'Neill. Yep. Uh, let's see. What? Uh, oh yes, uh, Daniel Murphy is another player who's been acquired since we last saw him. What was the? Wait. Tell me what ha- What the? Tell me about the middle infield for the Washington Nationals in 2015, and then tell me what it will. What it's expected to look like entering 2016. Uh, well, they ended the year uh, in a little bit of a, a pickle because uh, they were moving guys around. So they had Anthony Rendon playing a little bit of second base or a decent amount of second base after he came back from injury. Uh, Danny Espinosa had a pretty good year as a kind of like a part-time, not quite full-time guy. Uh, they had Ian Desmond as their regular shortstop, but he slumped some and as a free agent won't be back. Uh, and then they called up Trey Turner late in the year, and he played oh. some in September. So uh, they kind of mixed and matched with a different, few different options. Uh, for 2016, now that Daniel Murphy is pretty much locked in at second base, uh, that's going to push Espinosa to shortstop, which is going to push Trey Turner back to AAA. Uh, but I think they probably wanted to do that anyway for service time reasons and just for uh, you know giving him a little bit more upper-level minor league time. He wasn't necessarily... Uh, I mean, he's still young. It's not like he's uh, learned everything he can learn in the minors. So uh, opening day, starting middle infield will almost certainly be Espinosa and Murphy. Uh, and then when Turner's ready, Espinosa can resume his kind of like part-time utility infielder role. Uh, he can start against some, some left-handers if they don't want to play Murphy there, uh, or they can potentially play Murphy at, at third base and put Espinosa at second if they wanted to put a better defensive infield on the field or for endones, uh, you know, a little uh, you know injured as he is from time to time. Um, gives them a little bit more infield depth. Right. So they're, so they're going with Espinosa. I mean, Espinosa was a – well, I know he was a shortstop at college. I believe he was a – was he a dirtbag? Is that what they are? Yeah. Yes. Long Beach State dirtbag? He might have even uh, – he might have even uh, uh, replaced Troy Tulowitzki for that team. I think that might be true. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, it was Ian Desmond who ended up uh, who ended up playing most shortstop, even though I think that it's always sort of been uh, considered a possibility that, that Espinosa could handle shortstop, right? Espinosa was a very good defensive second baseman for uh, when he came up, and I think there's always been thought that he could play short if it, if it was need be, and he's played some shortstop in the past, but it's not like he hasn't played shortstop. So uh, they've kind of used him as a you know backup middle infielder or part-time middle infielder, and I think that's probably the role he'll move back into uh, once Turner's ready. But they're going to give him a shot to like open the ears of starting shortstop and see how he can do. He has a uh, – uh, the uh, – what should I say – the margin, the margin for error on his uh, likely production is very wide. I think. Yeah, he can either be really good or really terrible. Yeah, because he he can he has a tendency to swing and miss sometimes, he doesn't he? Not a lot of contact. Yeah, yeah, yeah but he uh, but even even a modest offensive contribution, in combina- uh, combined with uh, say average shortstop defense, that's that's a fine player. Yeah, I mean he's kind of like Javier Baez in a sense of like when he hits for power, he's really good. And when he doesn't hit for power, he's pretty terrible. Yeah. Um, okay. Hey, listen. That's a that's 32 minutes. That's 32 minutes right there of a conversation in a in a week when um, well, I guess the Yankees made something happen, but not not too much else. Yeah, a lot of people probably still recovering from a holiday hangover. Well, uh, do you mean like an actual alcohol-induced hangover? Or do you spend or, you know just like chocolate? Do you spend a, lot, a lot of chocolate gets consumed. Did you spend time with family? I did. How'd it go? It went. <laughs> no, I mean it was good. You know, my parents flew out from Seattle and uh, right, yeah, got to spend good. their their uh, Christmas with their uh, son and having his first, or their grandson having his first Christmas, and so it was, a, it was enjoyable. Yeah, a lot of yeah, you get family together though. Now, do you do you see the merit in living in living close to family where where you don't have to stay over their house and they don't have to stay over your house? Do you see some virtue in that? 
yeah, I mean, I think the the virtue isn't so much that they have to they don't have to stay at your house so much as they can watch your kids. I think that's the primary well, virtue. That's a good one. Yeah, most yeah. family is having uh, assistance around when you need someone to be like, hey, come watch my child, so I can go do something. Yeah, but it is sometimes nice to go back to your place and sleep there, and then you can see them. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, right, I didn't, I didn't move across the country to get away from my parents. No, I know. And now that I have a grandchild, I, I, uh, wish they were closer. And isn't your mother, like, uh, the sweetest person? She is the best. Yeah. She is the, uh, Chicago Cubs of mothers. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Alright, well, we don't want to ask you about your mother, but, uh, um, I think you've fulfilled your obligation regardless. Oh, uh, uh, thank you. That yeah. was a weird, weird ending. Yeah, it was. It was deeply personal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that has been uh, Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. We thank him. You say you're welcome, Dave? You're welcome, Dave. Yep. <laughs> I'm Carson Stooley, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.